Does everything we know and see have a spirit? Are natives or indigenous caregiving skills and traditions different than our own or more modern approaches? And how are grandparents becoming our North Star? You might be surprised. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for, and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello everybody, this is Nancy May from Doing It Best at Elder Care Success. And we're going to do a really interesting series over the course of this year. This is the first of several that I'll be doing. And the program is really focused in on how different cultures work with and support their aging community with dignity and respect and something that we can all learn from one another. And our first guest is Morris Switzer, who is a First Native resident or tribe member. Morris is a citizen of the Mississauga Alderville First Nation, one of some 40-member communities of the Anishinaabek Nation in Ontario, Canada. He's also a proud of his Mohawk and Jewish heritage, which is a, maybe we should talk about both combinations of the two and how that works. Morris currently lives in North Bay, Ontario, which is located about 250 miles north of the provincial capital of Toronto, Canada, which is Canada's largest city. And I believe it's also one of the most diverse cities in the world, which is also a very interesting location to live and be. But 250 miles north of that is pretty far to be connected. Morris serves as a member of the Nipsing University Indigenous Council on Education and is on the board of North Bay's Indigenous Friendship Center, one of 125 such centers to provide a variety of cultural-based services to urban Indigenous residents. At various times, he's also been a member of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, an editor and publisher of five Canadian daily newspapers, and communications director for the Assembly of First Nations, the national political voice for over 600 communities in Canada, and the Union of Ontario Indians, and an adjunct professor of Indigenous and Communication Studies in the Laurentian University, at the Laurentian University campus. So obviously that's a mouthful, and you heard me stumble over some of that. But with that, it's a pleasure to have Morris with us, who will just share. I'm very curious, really, Morris, about some of the different cultural aspects of First Nation people and how you, as a series of tribes or, or communities, take care of your elderly or the elder citizens of your people. And how is that different from what you see of sort of regular Canadians or North Americans? Yeah, well, thanks very much for the invitation, Nancy. And you did pretty well in uh, navigating those many multi-syllabled uh, Indigenous words. I- I'm going to start using some of the language. I'm not a fluent speaker by any means, but uh, it's very important for us to, whenever we get the opportunity, to use some of our language and remind people who are listening that these languages are being spoken on this land thousands of years before Europeans came here. So. Nani Bojo Niji, 
Benezi Dishnakas, Wajash Dorum on a Schnabek and Waro Dorum Hodnashoni, Alderwaldon Jiba, North Bay and Diana and a Schnabek and Dao. So I've greeted your listeners as friends and I've said that I come from a couple of clans that you mentioned in your description. And my family's the indigenous part of my family hails from one of those 600 First Nation communities in Canada called the Mississaugas of Alderville, which is in southern Ontario, closer to Toronto. And I said we're part of the Anishinaabek Nation, which is a collective of communities primarily in what is now the province of Ontario. And I said that I'm in North Bay and I've lived here for 22 years now. And and the ice has just nicely gone off the big lake beside my home. (laughs) People were people were ice fishing until a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and we're fishing in the ocean in Florida. <laughs> so uh, your topic is an interesting one. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of these people that while indigenous peoples, we call we, we have three groups of indigenous populations in Canada. There are about one and a half million of us, which represents about 5% of Canada's population. The indigenous population in the United States is, of course, much smaller. I think it's about I think it's about 2%, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't realize it was that much smaller. Yeah. And I think there are about what you call tribes, about 530 or 40 tribes. We have what we call First Nations, about 634, I think so. But I really believe that there are far more similarities in cultural practices. I've always said that a ravioli is really just a wonton. and <laughs> I'll eat my raviolis with chopsticks next time. Yeah. <laughs> But I think Europeans, uh, certainly Europeans that settled in Canada, and I'm sure it's the same in the States from what I know about from Italian friends, Jewish friends, that there was a time when it was considered that your household consisted of likely uh, an older generation, a current working generation, and children who were also grandchildren of the older people in the in the home. And I think that was quite common for all sorts of practical reasons, economic reasons. But what has happened is you don't see, certainly in what we would call our mainstream culture in Canada, you don't see many cases where there is that older generation still living with their children and their grandchildren. It's going to be interesting. The price of housing is becoming alarming here, and it may be the same in the States. It is very much so here in the States. And quite frankly, just to sort of interrupt you and share that a lot of major, and I'd say major significant investors are coming in to Florida and other parts of the country, but specifically we see it here, to buy up properties and homes or to build strictly to rent and driving the prices up, which is making it more difficult for people to own. Well, this is very timely because today the government of Canada brought down its budget and the concern for the escalating home prices in Toronto, Canada's largest city, the prices of houses went up 30% within the last... Same down here or close to it in Florida. Yep. So the, the government of Canada announced in their budget today that they are putting a, a ban on international investments in housing here for at least two years. But that doesn't stop Canadian entrepreneurs from buying up housing as investments. But there was a lot of offshore buying, particularly in in provinces like British Columbia, where a lot of Asian investors that were buying up homes and and housing units and and driving the price through the roof. So in any event, that maybe the price of housing will force more families to consider going back to that type of, of household where there were at least three generations present. Well, especially as typically it's the the parents 
or the elders who own the property. I mean, they bought many years ago. And if the younger generation can't afford to acquire a home as an asset, then there's a possibility to move in and say there's a dual representation or dual share there, right? Where the the parents need the help and support and the kids, I'll say the adult kids who may even have young children, get to enjoy life with those that help bring them up. It may be a little bit more difficult for the in-laws, but... (laughs) Well, yes. And in many cases, I was just reading an article article today where they said the only guarantee that younger people have today of home ownership is if they have rich parents. Well, or parents who bought low and aren't going to sell till whenever, or they could actually use the assets. So the the challenges from that perspective are really not that much different from exactly, a exactly. First Nation perspective. I think that, that where you see those multi-generational families more often in Canada, on, res- on reserves, those are those 630 communities where you would call them tribes in the States where First Nations live. But there's also an economic, sort of an economic rationale for that because There's a great shortage of housing supply on reserves. Most Indigenous peoples have moved into urban centers in Canada. The government wanted us to assimilate. There were attempts to to make our culture disappear. But the lack of economic and educational opportunities on those reserves, many of which are kind of remote, some of them are on islands, has forced many people like my grandparents to move off them and to try to get work or education opportunities for their families. But still on those reserves with that housing shortage or the shortage of really good housing stock, there's still many multi-generational families. And when you go into um, even communities like North Bay, which is a very modest-sized city where I live, it's only 50,000, 54,000 people, largely the multi-generational families would be what we would call ethnic households. They might be Italian. I know of a, of a man who's superintendent of an educational board here. He's more affluent, but he is converting a garage into a granny flat. Yep. So parents can live in there, which will bring them closer. They'll be in the same property in any event as their children and as maybe some of their grandchildren. And that dynamic, more and more people are realizing that that's that's a healthy environment. And I know there may be some people who think, oh boy, we got free babysitters now. Um, yeah, I think twice about that one because <laughs> the parents need the support as much as sometimes the young kids. But the, you know, it's very interesting. I've seen younger children get very attached to the grandparents and help out in such a yes. beautiful and sensitive way quite frankly, better than many adults can. And and again, I think particularly in this age where I don't know what the, the percentage, but certainly a huge proportion of, of households are, are where both parents are working. And I think grandparents are certainly capable of giving a type of affection that mom and dad maybe aren't, you know, that they've gone through the, the hectic workday life. And when they come home, being a loving parent maybe isn't the first thing on the top of their agenda. It's very difficult, and particularly for women, because women are bearing most, still bearing most of the of the household chores and duties, even if they're working outside the home. So, grand and grandparent, I'm a great grandparent, actually. Well, congratulations. Let me ask you a little bit about. I sort of want to get back onto the subject of the First Nation and the cultural scenarios. I'm wondering, as you say, more of the First Nations or the the Natives have gone into assimilate into more city environments from 
their original lands, if some of those traditions have moved into that new environment, similar to Jewish families or other types of ethnic groups that do things like that, but understanding where the First Nations, and I think of, you know, old stories, I hate to say this, this sounds very biased, but cowboys and Indian shows, right? Yeah. That we grew up with as kids and seeing how the elder tribe members were the ones that seemed to be the the tough guys who led the young kids out there. And, and I'm not sure if that still can, is, if that still works. And even if there's a gentle and more respect to the elders in the First Nation tribes, where there may not be here in the Christian faith. Traditionally, the the word elder is, is kind of abused at times and overused and stereotyped. But if you mean an older generation of a family, and it, again, there are, in the same way as that there are members of, of ethnic communities that live in a more traditional way and less secular, I guess, for want of a better word. Right. The indigenous tradition has always been that to really respect your elder. And I don't like stereotyping groups, population groups, but I think it's fair to say that I see that more still, even in some urban households where indigenous peoples have moved. I know my grandfather lived with us after his wife died because it was kind of considered a last resort to move an elder into a, a retirement home. You know, that was considered sort of a last. As opposed to this would be easier for them and easier for us because we can't handle it. Yes, exactly. I still see that as very much considered a value to have, and I hesitate using words like wisdom, but life experience. Mm-hmm. Nothing can teach younger people like someone else's life experience. And and again, the grandparents have the advantage that they often, again, they don't have to have the, make the tough decisions parents might have to with their children with regard to discipline. Or The grandparents can be sort of that North Star, that permanent place where even a place of refuge sometimes for their grandchildren. You know, I got it. I My grandmother passed away when I was in second grade, so I didn't have that, but it was always a treat to go see my Grammy, as we called her. Well, I'm so lucky. And actually, my mom and I, my mom's and my birth father, they separated when I was quite young. So I lived with my grandparents, my indigenous grandparents in a little village with my mom. So there were three generations in the house. That house had, my grandfather built that house with his own two hands out of field stone and mortar. There was no running water. There was no indoor plumbing and there was no central heating. And I still dream. In Canada. (laughs) Yeah. I still dream about that house because there was more love in that house because I spent my days, my mother had to work and I spent my days with my grandparents. I used to go berry picking with my grandfather. My grandmother was the first person to show me how to bait a hook to go fishing. Oh, that's great. I always felt very loved. And again, my mother loved me, but she didn't spend as much time with me as my grandparents. So I was very lucky. And I feel I feel for you not having had the privilege of, of having that as a constant source uh, later in, in, in your early years, because it's... I would have loved it. I, to this day, I, I can picture my grandmother sitting in... She was in a nursing home because my parents could not physically take care of her yeah, yeah. with infant children. And she sat there by a window that we always got bird feeders and things for that on birthdays <laughs> and holidays. And the light behind her would just sort of shine and 
and glow off the back of her. <laughs> of course, I was a child. And the look on her face, she always beamed. The smile went from ear to ear. <laughs> and she couldn't walk. She was she had yeah. a walker. It was extremely difficult for her to do so. And was in a wheelchair for most of the time that I knew her. But those little things, even the, even the smell of what the public restroom smelled like in the place <laughs> and, and the wallpaper that for those of us who remember B. Altman's with the purple flowers, <laughs> this bathroom had purple flowers. And I just said, oh my God, it's like the store we go shopping for Easter clothes at. <laughs> but those memories are, are strong. So, But those are not necessarily culturally indicative. Those are parental transfers of grandmother and parent and grandchild type of thing that were special versus how that might work in and a First Nation tribe that might be different than those of us? Well, in many First Nation communities and even or political organizations, there is a specific role for the word is they might have something like an elders council. Mm -hmm. And in, in many cases, though, that council, those council members don't have a vote in the affairs of the community, but their advice is regularly sought on major matters, particularly with regard to to anything dealing with the land, the use of the land, the tribal lands. So there, there is a, a formal place in Indigenous communities, urban and otherwise, I should mm -hmm. say, that there isn't in mainstream. Now, we're supposed to think of bodies like your American Senate as sort of the, the wiser voice of experience. And we won't but, get um, into U.S. politics. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a, a Senate here that's appointed. There, the cries for it to, to be changed are getting louder because it's it's become a patronage haven for party hacks, right. you know. So it's they're not even elected. But that was the principle, I think, when those systems of government started. Or in the in England, the House of Lords. Right. Again, I think the concept was well, these are people who've been around longer. And they will have perspectives on the world that should help our systems of government. But that's a kinder, gentler, wiser approach to sort of, yeah. Almost, I, I would almost say mediation when things get a little yeah. taken out of yeah. the boundaries where they should or shouldn't be, right? And uh, we have, again, and in, in I, I work for a political organization in my introduction, you mentioned the Union of Ontario mm -hmm. Indians, and we had an elders council. And they were involved in all discussions of the elected political leaders, and their advice was often specifically sought, in, again, in particularly in major decisions. And that's unlike what you see in other societies, I think. I guess they say everything that's old is new again. I mean, they would all come full circle on, on many of the problems keep rehashing. And the newer generation or the younger generation typically doesn't see what a generation might have seen multiple generations back as even they were growing up. I would agree with you on, on that front. I want to sort of skip forward a little bit and talk about sure. when First Nation senior or elder becomes infirmed and comes towards that later part of life where they may be facing the end of their life how the families in general, or the, the, the native people look at that transition of life that goes from breath to no breath. And what happens at that point? Because every culture has a, a certain type of tradition and faith on that as well. In urban settings, my late mother passed on in 2020 
She was five days short of her 101st birthday. And uh, she lived, uh, we live in different cities. I asked her if she would like to move up here. And again, she lived most of her adult life in one area and she still had some family members, even though I'm an only child. That would have been too many changes for her to, to make. And she lived on her own, and I would visit her regularly, and we would talk on the phone almost daily. But when she got into her 90s, she started having what we thought were fainting spells, but we later discovered were probably mini strokes. And she asked, actually, to go into a retirement home. And again, she was still mobile. She participated in exercises, in outings to look at scenery or shopping and She's very independent. She had her independence right up until really the last two or three years of her life. And so that's quite common in um, in urban settings. And on the First Nations, you're seeing building more sort of equivalent of retirement Mm -hmm. communities or buildings. And again, when it becomes a health issue or a situation where an elder requires more care than their children is capable of providing, that's when they will look at moving them into a a center like that. So, but again, I've never seen a study with percentages, but I would guess that that both urban and and on reserve, as we say, my guess is, my strong suspicion is that the percentage of the older generation that is still living in a three-generation home is higher than with, with, certainly with with most. I think that's that's lovely when a a community can actually do that and is committed to it. It's it's not easy to do for sure because there are differences. I know of situations, for example, that one of the indigenous traditions is going back centuries is that when hunters went out, they um they didn't hunt for themselves; they hunted for the whole right. community. And there's still a tradition. I know at the First Nation closest here, just on the outskirts of North Bay, Nipissing First Nation. I know that that when the men go for the annual moose hunt or deer hunt, the first place they will they will bring supplies of meat is to seniors or elders who probably may be living on their own. That's quite common. Quite I don't common. see that. I don't know about it here, but I have heard of groups that will give it to the poor if they've collected too much than they can handle, but still. And with regard to when people come to that place, and I was very glad to hear you talk about life being in a circle, because that's a very Indigenous way of looking at life. It's not a linear thing. It's it's a cycle that repeats itself. And and there's so many circles in the world. Our seasons come in those circles and repeat. Um, Our ages come in the same circle. You start with the birth, you go up to like an adolescent, and then you go to adult, and then north is the north direction, we say that, our elder. We come in the east because that's the way the day starts, through the sun, sun's rising. So that's very much the, the life cycle. Unfortunately, that cycle has been greatly interrupted. I think they're starting to look at the issue in the in the United States that has gained a lot of traction here, where those compulsory residential schools caused a lot of mm-hmm. damage to Indigenous people and literally a, a, a real break in that natural life cycle. Of that's why a lot of people lost parenting skills because they were incar- literally incarcerated in those schools. But that's the natural life cycle, as they say, in the same way as the seasons progress. And our belief is that, and I can only speak for what I've been taught, and again, there are many nations of Indigenous peoples, and I'm an Anishinaabek, we're one of about 40 real nations, but many, there's a lot of similarity in the belief that our spirits 
come here. It's not, it's almost similar to the thoughts about reincarnation, mm -hmm. the, the belief that there is a spirit world and our spirits actually decide which baby they're going to inhabit. Interesting. Is that decided at birth through the tribe or discussions? Uh, or It's a belief that while the mother is pregnant, that there's a spirit that's preparing to come here when that birth takes place. So we don't necessarily know what spirit, think of spirit animals. I was at a conference out in out in the Grand Tetons area. And yeah. I remember there was a little gift shop said that, you know, the, the stones that had spirit animals on them. And I decided yeah. that my spirit animal was bear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I saw how big that grizzly was. Well, maybe not a grizzly, maybe a black bear. I like to be a kinder, gentler bear. Because yeah. <laughs> those big ones are like, yo, they're huge. Well, again, my tradition, the Anishinaabek tradition is that sometimes it depends. Where there, There's no homogeneity, no, you, you know, nothing's unanimous. But some people, groups believe that the first creature that you see when you're a child may be your spirit animal that will guard you against harm. And some traditional parents will ask an elder to name their child. And the elder, that's supposed to come from a dream or a vision that the elder has. And, and often that the name that they give will often say something about the spirit of that child and what their destiny is to, to do in life. But our belief is that everything has a spirit. Every plant, every rock, every tree, every animal, every insect, you know, every human being. And again, we certainly with the human beings, we believe that those spirits come from a spirit world and inhabit us. And some people would say it's similar to a soul. Okay. Well, this certainly is far from a universal practice. When there's a death in Indigenous communities, if the people have held to their traditional beliefs, they will light a spirit fire, uh, a sacred fire, for four days. Four is very important. This is, at, this is after somebody has passed. When someone's passed, and they say that that journey of that spirit back to the spirit world, return to the spirit world, and it takes four days, and someone has to watch that fire. It's almost like, uh, you know, when, when uh, Jewish community members sit in... Um, Shiva? Yeah, Shiva. And someone has to be at that, tend that fire for four days. It's someone's job to keep the fire lit and family members will take turns. And, and again, that's um, because that's belief the spirit is gone and what is being buried or cremated is a shell. Mm -hmm. And that sense of our ancestors being these spirits, this, I was, I mentioned, I was at this indigenous student graduation ceremony earlier this afternoon. And a couple of the students, it, when they were making their remarks to the assembly, expressed how good they felt because they felt surrounded by the spirits of ancestors. Oh, how wonderful. And we believe that you can summon up, many tribes believe you can summon up those spirits with song or with drums, that that sends a, a signal out and that, that that calls those spirits to where you are. It uh, can be in a ceremony like a sweat lodge mm -hmm. or anywhere. And the good thing about Indigenous religion is it saves us a lot of money on real estate because your church is wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kind of like, I like that. I don't believe personally that the spiritual <laughs> relationship that you have with whatever maker is out there is in four walls. It really is hopefully something that surrounds you and follows you on, on a good path as opposed to, well, those that don't have a yes. good path, maybe... Maybe they don't get followed. I don't know. Or maybe they get a kick in the butt instead. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, it was it was interesting to see these students, the uh, you know, feel so comforted at this really happy time in their life, and they felt that one one young woman mentioned that her grandmother had just passed a, a couple of months ago, and while that was sad, she felt that her grandmother had supported her so much in her educational journey, and she felt her spirit was there as she in this formal graduation process, and and that that sense of that kind of strength of belief mm. can. Anybody who has strong belief systems can that'll that should help them get through a lot of difficult periods in life and and that sense that that those spirits don't they don't evaporate that's a very much an indigenous tradition that those spirits are you know they're they're around us you know spirits just as we start to wrap up there as my in both cases where my parents passed here at home our lead aide Millie her her daughter is a nurse. And after my dad, who my dad was the first one to pass, she called and she immediately said, open the window, open the window. And I didn't know what it was. And so she, you know, Millie opened the window and she explained later on that the belief, at least here in many of the the hospitals is if, yeah. or in homes is if somebody dies, you open the window so that their spirit is not trapped in the home. So yeah. we open the, they open the window for it. I said, then as soon as you know, after mom, dad, I said, do we open the window? Did we open the window? And so <laughs> we open the window, you know, they're both off together. Hopefully. That's fun. That's yes. And that's, again, there are many cultural kind of similar. That reminds me, uh, you know, of an old, I think it was an old Joan Rivers joke where she was pregnant and didn't know much about human sexuality or anything, so she was yelling at the nurse. She to, knew enough. To, to open, yeah, yeah. She, yeah. She yelled at the nurse to open the window so the stork could come in. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, I guess a stork is better than a cabbage at that point, right? <laughs> I have one last question. Now, we talked about the four days afterwards, uh, but... As memory goes on, is there a way that the First Nation people celebrate the life of somebody who's passed afterwards that might be different that we could learn from? Well, again, many Indigenous peoples here and in your country are Christianized. Right. And, and there are all sorts of historic reasons for that. But And we're, we're seeing a resurgence of traditional beliefs among young people. And, the, and we had prophecies that said that would happen. And we're starting to see young people who are taking up those traditional beliefs and, and they're drumming and singing and dancing. and But those that, again, that, that observe their traditions, I know the tradition in the Jewish community, if someone dies on the one-year anniversary, there's a ceremony. Uh, but in the Anishinaabek culture, they have a Feast of the Dead. Not dissimilar to the Day of the Dead for the Mexicans. Yes, it's a very similar. Because of course, Mexicans are indigenous peoples, at least oh, the, the, first, um, the Spanish came later. But no, the, it's similar and it's just a remembrance. There can be ceremonies. And usually in our communities here, that usually is a big celebration, a community feast. Everybody be invited for a meal and, and someone would say some words. There might be some talks about some remembrances of some of their ancestors. So that's usually in, in November. It's a celebration of thanks and Thanksgiving without the Thanksgiving as we know it in pilgrim type ways. Yes. And the word prayer is, I think, overused. Uh, I'm asked to give what we call openings for meetings because okay. most even, even our political meetings open with some words in the language. Prayer in the sense of asking for something is not what we're, our tradition is, our tradition is that it's a Thanksgiving. And the Thanksgiving that Mohawk people give, if, if you know it by heart, I know the uh, some Anishinaabek Thanksgiving, but the Mohawk Thanksgiving takes about 
three quarters of an hour. And it, both of them literally thanked the creator for giving us everything from water to the animals, to the birds, to the tree. You know, that's how we're supposed They're to. really thankful. Oh, yeah. And we're, we say every day is Thanksgiving. Like, well, sure. I give a little Thanksgiving every morning when I start my day. Like, it, it's a gift that you open your eyes and you're on the right side of the grass, as the Irish say, you know. Yes. <laughs> Nothing is to be taken for granted. Historically, there were some tribes, the Huron people in this part of what's now Canada, when they moved, they revered their ancestors so much that they would dig up their bones and take them. Oh my goodness, wow. They wouldn't just leave them there. Like we leave our dead in cemeteries, so at least nobody is likely going to come and... Well, the idea of going back, how often, my husband and I were talking about this a while back, said, how often do we go and visit somebody who's died in, you know, our grandparents. As children, my mom and dad used to take us to the cemetery. We'd spruce up grandma's grave and my sister's grave and some others, and then sort of talk about family life and family lineage, but not as a morose or sad thing, but more as a celebration of who they were and, and how they impacted our lives. Our world moves so fast now with things like the internet and everything else. And, you know, there's a teaching that there were four brothers originally, and depending on who tells the story, you can make it four sisters. And the creator sent those four to populate the earth. And one of them was red, one of them was black, one of them was white, one of them was yellow. And the white brother, that white brother's gift or sister, their gift was to do everything fast. They did everything in a hurry. And that certainly is what Eurocentric society is. Is You know, you wouldn't want to say, given what goes on in the world, that, that we're doing everything better than what's ever done, but we're doing it faster. Just hurry up and get it done. Let's get there next. And with that pace of life, I, you know, I don't know what it's like in the States. I'm sure it's the same. But, you know, we're almost at epidemic proportions of things like anxiety, different kinds of mental illness among our young people. Yep. Because there's so much pressure on them. Everything is so fast and Everything's in a hurry and you got to do it now. And COVID should have helped us slow down. Our teaching is, indigenous teaching is that sickness is supposed to teach us humility because no matter how rich you are, no matter how wealthy, no matter how famous you are, you can't overcome an illness if it takes hold. There's nothing you can do. You're just as prone to it as anybody else. We're we're all cut out of the same cloth, ultimately, in in the end. Yeah. I had had a mentor years back who said, slow down, Nancy, you'll get there faster. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And I think think he was right. But that's very much, you know, our, our young people... They don't, they don't take the time. They don't feel they have the time to visit graves. And the thing about that secular, circular view of the world is that history repeats itself. And we, we, want, so. we want the good things to repeat themselves, not the bad things. That's why it's so important to have older people who can talk about those life experiences, hopefully to their children or grandchildren. And it's really something that has not had the the impact that we'd like to in with the trouble that's going on in our lives. Hopefully we'll slow down and listen and learn a little bit more. So on that, Morris, I'm going to end here. But on the way out, first of all, I want to thank you so much for joining me here today. It's been a joy. And there's so much more, so many more questions I have. We could go (laughs) on for hours and uh, we can do that on the side. And if you've got a celebration of thanks that you could end our show with today, that would be lovely. Okay. Miigwech Misham Sanonik, Miigwech Nakomas Nanik, Miigwech Takamikwe Gimijiung, Shkiki, 
Gijiang Tikog, Gijiang Wasinia, Gijiang Benetia, Gijiang Gigonia, Gijiang Sinin, Gijiang Aki, Gijiang Nodin, Gijiang Skoda, Gijiang Nabi, Gijiang Nijiminwa, Gijiang Madzawin, Samanagap Kidnanan, Guednung, Wabnung, Jaunung, Minagabiaunung, Miguetch, 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 Miguetch. So, so that's thanking our grandfathers and grandmothers and Mother Earth. And Gemnado is the, the great mystery or the great spirit for all those gifts. And I mentioned animals and birds and fish and rocks and trees and the wind and water and fire. And, you know, human beings were given everything we needed to survive. Everything. What kind of a deal is that? We were given pretty lucky deal, right? We were given the warmth and the fire of the sun. We were given everything we needed to eat. Sometimes we needed to find it, but it was there. Plants and animals. We, we were, you know, we were given water. I've been way up north where there isn't much population, and and had the rare opportunity to dip a cup into a lake and drink it safely. You wouldn't want to do that. Where I live here, I wouldn't want to drink out of Lake Nipissing. No, I don't think I'd want to do it down in no. the <laughs> so, but, the Wiki Wachi waters. Yeah. <laughs> but we have we have been given everything we need, but we have a society, as you know, where uh, you know I've been part of the capitalist system, and and it's it's done well by me, and I've done well by it. But capitalism to the to the extent of greed. That's a step too far. And the indigenous tradition is that you share everything with your, that's why the, you know, a lot of people of conservative persuasion think that, that Indians lead a socialist lifestyle. They believe in sharing. I, mean, I said, I, I think it could go on forever. I appreciate that follow up, that final thank note of thanks. And on that note, may the sun always be warming your back and your heart and leading you forward wherever you go. How's that? Oh, thanks so much, Nancy. And thank you very much for the invitation and good luck with the work you're doing. It's all, those are all messages that are, that, that should give some people make some people feel good, I hope. I hope so. A message of hope and opportunity, no matter what age you are, ultimately, because it's not just elder care success, it's it's success every day of your life. And that comes in small doses sometimes. Well, if I believe if you lead a good life, you'll never really die. That's the way I'm going to end it right here. <laughs> <laughs> on a positive note, we're not dead, we're moving on. <laughs> Thank you, Morris. Take care. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021 Caremanity LLC.